New York is on the verge of receiving its first doses of a coronavirus vaccine. Hanukkah has begun, and the capital region saw its first measurable snowfall. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over some of the week's top headlines in the Times Union and online. Will, for example, the Times Union Center be used as a vaccination point? We'll hear from the acting College of St. Rose president on the school's financial woes and recent program cuts. With the onset of uh, COVID-19, the the pandemic, um, higher education sector is in a period of real transformation. We'll hear about the uplifting holiday surprise this week for an ailing Albany teen. And we'll get the recipe for perfect latkes for Hanukkah. And then once it gets golden on one side, flip it, let it get golden on the other, drain it on a, you know, a tray lined with paper towels and eat them. And that's really it. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler. We're going to go over the top headlines this week. And at the top of everyone's list, I think, is the fact that New York is going to get a batch of vaccines this weekend. And the capital region is going to get about 5% of those vaccines. So can you tell us what, what the scene is here? Of course, this is all, we're talking Thursday morning. This is predicated on the FDA approving the Pfizer vaccine, which would be the first one out of the gate. New York is scheduled to receive an initial batch of 170,000 doses. But please bear in mind that this is going to be a vaccine that is going to come in two shots that you get roughly a, a month apart. Same thing for the Moderna Uh, vaccine that is sort of second in line. As you noted, the capital region is supposed to get a little bit less than 8,000 of the 170,000 of the initial Pfizer, you know, stock that's going to roll out. It'll go out via UPS and FedEx to 90 distribution centers across the state. And then it's really kind of on New York to come up with the plan for distributing it. What we know, what we've already heard is that um, pharmacies are going to play a key role in the distribution. What we don't know yet is whether or not sort of uh, uh, slightly less conventional distribution centers that have been used before in vaccine distribution, such as you know H1N1 um, back in 2009, will, for example, the Times Union Center be used as a vaccination point. What we've been told by the Cuomo administration is that nursing home residents and staff, as well as kind of frontline medical workers in COVID wards, for example, will will get the first doses. Wow, we'll be keeping an eye on that. 
In uh, other news, out of the attorney general's office, the state attorney general, Tish James, announced a lawsuit against Facebook yesterday. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Tish James is kind of taking the lead um, on this suit, which is, as as you noted, brought by uh, more than uh, 45 states, as well as the District of Columbia and I believe Guam, accusing Facebook of using anti-competitive practices to become sort of uh, crushing personal data monopoly that many have warned about, that its practice of buying up competitors such as Instagram and WhatsApp in these multi-billion dollar deals has uh, effectively made it uh, an an anti-competitive monopoly. Now, Facebook has responded and said, hey, look, no one is uh, obligated to go on Facebook. You know, it is there. There are other social media platforms out there. You know, conservatives are now flocking to Parler, for example. There is Twitter that is still separate from Facebook. And and all of the deals that, uh, you know, the acquisitions that are referred to in the lawsuit were approved by federal regulators at the time. It is being cast as the state lawsuit is uh, overthrowing previous federal decisions, okaying these moves by Facebook. Interesting. Uh, now on Capital Region News, we lost uh, somewhat of an icon this week. Well, Father Peter Young, who was 90 and had been battling multiple myeloma, he was a remarkable figure. I uh, got to know him when I was the State House Bureau Chief. Father Young was uh, famous as uh, as someone who could, you know, sort of uh, uh, nurture relationships with elected officials as a way to secure the support that he needed for this network of nonprofits that he founded that worked with the homeless, that worked particularly with people with um, substance abuse problems. They offered career counseling, you name it. And this was a network that really stretched from the five boroughs all the way out to Buffalo. Uh, John Sweeney, the former congressman who uh, has spoken openly of his own battles with alcoholism, he, he's been sober for more than a decade now, said that Father Young really reached out to him when he was absolutely at, at rock bottom, and not because he was an elected official, but because he was like so many other people that Father Young interacted with, an addict, an alcoholic, and a really remarkable life and um, a remarkable story of, of service to the region. And you can read all of the pieces that we've done on him throughout the years going way, way, way back on timesunion.com. I would also recommend that folks go back and read Linda Edwards' profile of him that really ran just, I, I think it was less than two months ago. And, uh, and I think you spoke to, uh, to Linda about that profile and about Father Young. I did on a previous episode of this podcast. You can go back and listen. All right. In sports news, the Valley Cats, our hometown baseball team, got dissed by the MLB this week. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Major League Baseball extended invitations to 120 minor league teams to uh, maintain their status as affiliates. The Valley Cats, which had been for a long, long time, I think it's its full 18-year history, had been affiliated with the Houston Astros, was not offered affiliation with any of the 30 teams, including the Astros. 
So this calls into question what manner of baseball, what league will uh, fill Joe Bruno Stadium when baseball resumes, <laughs> you know, whether that's whether that's in the summer of 2021 or uh, or on down the road. Now, the Valley Cats has said that that they absolutely want to continue, obviously, and they want to find a way perhaps through an independent regional league that can bring quality baseball to the region. It's sad, but not unexpected. Senator Chuck Schumer has uh, really kind of worked the phones and made pleas with other teams to consider uh, affiliating with the the Valley Cats, but unfortunately it, it came to naught. Really the only good thing about this, Jess, is that the capital region will not be thought of in the same breath as the Houston Astros, who are, of course, cheaters. <laughs> well, that is a bright side for sure. And I really keep my fingers crossed that I can sit in the stadium there at Joe Bruno Stadium and watch a game next summer. That would be a delight. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's it's a it's a remarkable facility that, you know, my son's a baseball player and that is the first place he saw a game being played in front of a crowd. Wow. All right. Well, you can read about all of the stories that we discussed on timesunion.com. Casey, thanks for joining us and we'll check back in with you next week. Jess, always a pleasure. The College of St. Rose announced this week that it would be cutting 25 degree programs. The financially strapped school is looking to save $6 million by eliminating the programs, including those in arts and music. The cuts will also eliminate more than three dozen faculty positions and comes on the heels of $8 million in cuts to administrative staff positions and salaries earlier this year. The decision this week sparked anger and sadness among students, faculty, and the community. Education reporter Rachel Silberstein spoke with the college's acting president, Marsha White. This is the second time, we'll get right into it, the second time in five years that we've seen sort of sweeping cuts and departments closed at the College of St. Rose. Last time, sort of the justification was this would sort of turn around the college's finances, but instead it has led to more cuts. What's sort of the game plan here? Well, I, I think the big issue to recognize is that um, with the onset of uh, COVID-19, the, the pandemic, um, higher education sector is in a period of real transformation. Yeah. Uh, there's no secret that these financial challenges are pressing throughout the country with all colleges and universities. And it's a time when you have to really make very tough decisions. I guess the question is, what do you do about it? And St. Rose chose to be proactive. Um, we've uh, laid out a three-year multiple financial plan to help the college with its long-term financial um, stability. And uh, we cut $8 million in administrative expenses a number of months ago. And now uh, we feel uh, the next step is to uh, reduce academic expenses. And that's what we feel that we have to do. I think it, it was also a shock for our community. You know, we realized the College of St. Rose produces so many of our teachers and they go to the College of St. Rose for like a well-rounded education, you know, lots of our music and art teachers. What, how did you decide which programs to prioritize? It was really um, the expense of 
versus revenue for one thing or enrollment. Um, one of the arts programs, for example, has had a um, experience of 56% decline in enrollment over the last five years. Um, one of the things I want to share with you is that, you know, the, uh, this college, as you mentioned, is known for a superior education, uh, which it will still continue to, to have, but also teaching teachers in the future. And our educational program is intact, and that certainly is um, one of the advantages of coming to St. Rose. We are, the, the process was really to also align our academic programs with the needs of the current and future students. You know, when the, when the Sisters of St. Joseph built the College of St. Rose 100 years ago, as of September, they understood that time changes and programs have to change. An example is they started with nursing. They eliminated nursing uh, um, years later because there wasn't enough revenue to keep up with the demand of the expenses. We brought back a BS in nursing this year. It is one of our new programs. Um, it was approved by New York State Education Department and we were able to enroll students this fall. So um, every college should be reevaluating itself on a regular basis, determining what, uh, what are the programs that are needed for our students. Is the identity of the college gonna change at all? Like it, having been known for its arts programs and as a liberal arts school, now it seems like the college is going in a more career training skill I wouldn't say that. I, I think the college um, still will be uh, will be uh, presenting um, um, arts, uh, liberal arts uh, education, which it has in the past. The college will still have arts industry, um, which is a very hot um, uh, industry uh, uh, college course. And the thing about music industry, it had um, it had about 105 students enrolled, huh. and the total enrollment of the BA in music, BM in performance, and BS in music ensemble were less than uh, the number of students enrolled in the music industry. So that was a contributing factor, but I think it's, it's a, uh, a music industry we really can build here um, and really uh, have a great uh, opportunity for students to feel they can come and get a, a great music education. Of course, you're not the only college in the region that's sort of struggling with these, you know, financially. Is We've heard of like some cases where smaller colleges merged with each other in order to consolidate some costs. Is that something that was ever on the table? Um, I think that there was, there was um, a, an awareness that that is one of the ways the colleges can solve their problems. I think that we, um, we just needed to quickly resolve our financial issues before we could even consider a, a, a merger or have that conversation. Whenever you lay off um, tenured faculty, you can anticipate some of them will appeal. There's an appeal process, correct? And, mm -hmm. and if that doesn't work, there might be legal action. Is that some, a fight that you're anticipating or plan for? Um, we recognize it's something that might happen. Um, I believe there probably will be a number of appeals. Um, I'm hopeful that those appeals, appeals will be resolved, but in addition, we, um, we offered a distinguished uh, professor program so that uh, it's a retirement incentive. So some of those uh, professors who uh, may have had uh, been notified or would have been notified that their programs were going to be eliminated 
will have that option and we have a number of them that have asked for that option. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. You're welcome. I hope to talk to you again soon. Yes. After the break, a teenager struggling with kidney disease gets a sweet holiday surprise. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. 14-year-old Malia Jackson lives in Albany and loves Christmas. She was disappointed this year when the annual tree lighting at her school, Hackett Middle School, was canceled due to the pandemic. She's also living with kidney disease that's progressed to end-stage renal failure. To cheer her up, school officials and residents planned a special ceremony. They threw Malia a holiday surprise tree lighting. Reporter Eduardo Medina was there to capture the moment, and I asked him to tell me all about it. You went to a very special event this week. Can you tell me about what you did? Sure, yes. So I went to a Christmas tree lighting ceremony that Hackett Middle School held for this girl named Malia Jackson. And they had the ceremony because uh, Malia Jackson, she is this sweet girl. She's 14. She's really smart, and uh, her mother describes her as an old soul, and she loves horseback riding, and and she loves cooking. She has a famous lemon pepper chicken recipe, and she lives with uh, kidney disease. She's currently in end-stage renal failure, and she is waiting for an appointment with her doctor for February 2021, and at that appointment, they will tell her if she qualifies for a kidney transplant. Um, oh, wow. Wait till then. Yeah. But until then, uh, you know, she is uh, undergoing dialysis for 10 hours a night, eight to 10 hours a night. It's it's hard. And her mom says it's hard and, and they don't try to sugarcoat it. You know, it, they, they say it is what it is. And it's definitely painful. And it's a struggle for them. And sure. uh, Maria was born with this. Or ever since she was born, she's, she's had struggles with uh, her kidney. Um mm. At age four, she was uh, diagnosed with nephrotic syndrome, which again relates to the kidney. And it, from there, it just kept on developing. And she's had wow. better periods and worse periods. Through all of this, too, she's a middle school student, you know, undergoing her typical studies of a, an eighth grader, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. She, she's, in, she's in school. And her mom tells me, like, you know, they, they have any, every sort of disagreement that any teen daughter and mother have. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> You know, she's on TikTok and Instagram, and she makes YouTube videos. Hi, guys. It's Malia from Malia's Life, back with another video for you guys. And today, um, I'm going to be showing you guys how I set up my machine. Well, she made one YouTube video in particular that you directed my attention to, where she explains how she uses her machine, her dialysis machine, right? Yeah, it's a really interesting video, isn't it? Her mom showed me that video first. All right, see now it says connect bags and open the clamp. So basically what that means is connect bags and open the clamps. 
we already did that so now what you do is you push go and it says priming and, you and just i thought that video was so striking i mean that it's it's malia being so empathetic toward these you know hypothetical kids who have the same thing that she has and she's just so patient and kind in that video and she carefully mm -hmm. goes step by step and i just thought it was very indicative of her of what her mom says is her character she's a very special kid she really is she's a very special kid So she got a very special holiday surprise. She typically likes to see the Christmas tree lightings, right? But the pandemic kind of put the kibosh on a lot of that stuff. That's right. Yeah, exactly. She she does. She loves it. it that event was one of the few things that Malia can go to. She can't be out for too long. And, you know, that ceremony, it's like a, you know, a brief 15-minute ceremony from what I understand. The typical whatever they did was canceled this year because of the pandemic, right? Yes, it was canceled because of the pandemic, and Malia was disappointed, and not only for herself, but for other kids who were in her situation and who looked forward to that event. And she told her mom, well, if we can't light up the tree, let's light up Albany. And her mom was kind of like, okay, yeah. <laughs> and she emailed the school and said, my daughter has this idea, what do y'all think? Or this suggestion, I should say. And the school they reckoned that they could uh, go ahead and have a little ceremony for Malia and make it happen. And that's wonderful. Now tell me about the ceremony. I get there and there's like a couple dozen people there. There's like this main organizer who I assume works at the school. Mm -hmm. He's like organizing everyone and telling them to get out their glow sticks and making sure everyone's uh, socially distanced. And supporting this young lady during the holiday season and her birthday. I want to thank each and every one of you for being out here. Oh, that's so exciting. Her birthday is so close to Christmas. Yeah, right? And and they it, everything went to plan. She, Malia had a police escort in her limo. And she rolled up all cool with her mother, and they hopped out. And that's when uh, everyone cheered. And then they, they, you know, they sang her happy birthday. Now, what was her reaction? I know you spoke with her afterward. How was she feeling? What did she, what did she take away from the experience? She was genuinely so surprised. Uh, she did not see this coming at all. I was like, wow, they are here for me. Like, I would, I never, like, I would, I'd be dreaming of moments like this. <laughs> it seemed to me like she was overwhelmed with gratitude and she was just thrilled. You know, she, she did not expect any of this. And I think, you know, for her to show up and see all these people there and all these lights. Oh, that's so special. What a wonderful treat for her. Yeah. Like this really, really made, like, I don't know, just made everything. I will literally be dreaming about this and I will never forget this day. So she got, she got some presents for her birthday, but is there anything that she really wants for Christmas this year? Yes, there's one thing she's really excited about or really hoping to get, uh, and her mom told me this. She wants to learn how to play violin. She's this really curious kid, and she loves 
to learn other languages and she wants to learn sign languages. And now her curiosity has led her to music and she thinks the violin is just, just makes the most beautiful sound. And she told her mom she wants to learn violin. And so her mom is going to work on that. That's great. Well, I look forward to any future videos that she'll put out on YouTube of her playing the violin. Now, you know, one final thought here. Um, you said you mentioned earlier in the conversation that she has to wait until February for uh, her prognosis. She is waiting for an appointment where she will meet with her doctor and they will run some sort of tests. And after they run these tests, they will know if Malia, if she can sustain a transplant her body can sustain that. And if they determine that she can, then she will be put on a list. And because she is, you know, a kid, a, a young kid who has no other underlying health condition, you know, besides her, her problems with her kidney, then she is likely to get a transplant. But, um, you know, the, her mother and, and uh, Malia are, are very uh, realistic and they know that there's a possibility that um, she won't be capable of, of having a transplant. But for now, they're, they're hopeful and they're just going to wait till February and then see what happens. All right. Well, we'll all keep our fingers crossed for her. That, that sounds like a very scary thing, but she sounds like she's ready to meet the challenge. Yeah, I think so too. This week marks the start of the eight-day Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. The Festival of Lights commemorates the rededication of the Second Temple of Israel in 168 BC, when according to legend, the Jews witnessed a miracle. Though they only had a small jar of olive oil, the menorah on the altar burned for eight days. Today, Jewish families gather to light the candles of the Hanukkiah or menorah and share a meal to celebrate. I recently spoke to food writer Deanna Fox about what's on the table for Hanukkah. I have Jewish heritage, you have Jewish heritage, um, and some knowledge of the typical dishes that one serves at Hanukkah. So could you just talk about which dishes those are specifically? What types of foods do we eat at Hanukkah? Yeah, so Hanukkah isn't one day, it's a week. Um, so usually you see things that are made in big batches that take a long time to cook, like a brisket. Um, because you can eat that over a couple of days. But Hanukkah is, you know, the story of the miraculous oil in the temple. Um, so anything cooked in oil is really associated with Hanukkah more than anything else. So definitely latkes and definitely donuts. A lot of people in this region are going to be celebrating Hanukkah, myself included. So let's pick a recipe. Let's talk about latkes. How do you make the perfect latke? Sure. So there's a lot of different ways that you can make them. And there's a lot of different preferences that people have. Some people want them to be really crunchy, like almost like a an onion ring, a fried onion texture where you, they just kind of snap in your mouth. And some people want them to be like pillowy, almost like a fritter, like a corn fritter or like an apple fritter, that kind of consistency. But I like it to be somewhere in the middle. I like it to be nice and lacy on the outside, but still kind of creamy in the middle still cook through, but kind of this nice, creamy, starchy potato texture. Um, so they're not hard to make and they don't take a long time to make, but it's really important that um, you soak your potato. So you're going to use a starchy potato, like a russet or a Yukon gold, or even a generic Idaho potato that you see sometimes. You're going to 
grade it. You can grade it on a box grader. If you're the kind of person that feels you need to bleed in order to make a good latke, you can definitely use a box grader. But <laughs> a food processor is totally fine. Like a food processor with the grating blade is is fine. The grating blade is the one with those little holes. It's not the big slicing blade. Um, so you gotcha. just push your potatoes through. I like to peel them. You don't have to peel them as long yeah. as you scrub them really well, but I like to peel them. Um, and you push them through. And then you're going to take a bowl, a big bowl, and you're going to put about an inch of water in the bowl. And you're going to put all of your shredded potatoes into that bowl of water. On top of your potatoes, you're going to sprinkle a couple of teaspoons, even up to a tablespoon of salt. And then you're going to mix the salt, the potatoes, and the water together. And then once that's all mixed really well, you're going to cover the potatoes with ice. You know, a couple of cups of ice will do it, just enough to keep it covered. And you're going to let that soak for 30 minutes, at least 30 minutes, maybe even up to an hour. And what's going to happen is the salt is going to pull out. It's going to break down the cells of the shredded potato. So it's pulling out moisture, but it's also pulling out starch. And it sounds counterintuitive to add water, but also remove water. But it does work. The science behind it does work. You're going to look, if you use a glass bowl, you'll see like this really milky fluid like goo in the bottom of your bowl. You're going to take whatever ice after 30 minutes, whatever ice remains on top of the potatoes, you're going to pull that off. You're going to get a clean cotton kitchen towel and you're going to gently pull your potatoes up out of that bowl. You don't want to drain your bowl. You want to actually take the potatoes up out of the bowl and put them in that towel and work in batches if you need to, but you're going to wrap the towel around the potato and you're going to wring it out. So you're going to twist the ends in opposite directions so that you get a lot of tension on the towel and you're going to wring it out over that bowl where the potatoes were and let all of that liquid drip down through. So if you remove liquid from the potato, you're going to get a crunchier potato. When you get all the potato done, um, you can set it aside for a minute. You're going to very, very slowly pour the water off. So the water and that white starch will separate. And you're going to do your best to pour the water off. You're going to lose some starch and that's okay. But the starch is going to actually act like glue. It's going to bind everything together and provide some really crispy texture to your potato. So it sounds like a lot of steps, but it actually works really, really well. And, you know, I don't expect you to make latkes once a week or once a month. I think you might just make them during December holidays. So you can take the extra steps to make something special. It's going to be okay and it's not hard. And then anyway, you've got your starch, you've got your, your wrung out potatoes. You're going to mix that together. You're going to add in some egg. You're going to grate up some, some onion and add that in. I use matzo meal to help bind it together, but you could just use flour and then salt and pepper. And that's it. And then you only need just a little bit of oil. You don't need to deep fry these, just like a half inch of oil and just rounded spoonfuls into your oil over like medium heat. You don't even need a, a thermometer. As long as things are sizzling and not burning, that's hot enough. You can adjust your heat as you need to. Um, but when you put your rounded spoonfuls of your lock of mixture in there, just take the back of your spoon to kind of press it out so it's nice and flat. And then once it gets golden on one side, mm -hmm. flip it, let it get golden on the other, drain it on a you know, a tray lined with paper towels and eat them. And that's really it. That's amazing. Now, what kind of pan would you recommend for this? Would like, would a nonstick be preferable to a, you know, regular pan or what, what's your recommendation? Nonstick is fine. You just want something that's heavy. You want a nice heavy pan. So if you have cast iron, that's even better. 
um, but something that can be on you know medium heat for a long period of time that heats evenly. You don't want any real hot spots um, where you'll have some latkes that get cooked really fast and some that go slow. And you can kind of move the latkes around in the pan too as they're cooking. So you get nice and even heat, but you know, don't, don't walk away from them. <laughs> Try to stay in the kitchen and keep an eye on them. And if you do that, if you're just monitoring them, it goes pretty quickly and it goes pretty easy. Just don't blast the heat. That's what's going to get you in trouble. Yeah, that's gotten me in trouble. I think that's why that was my mistake the last time I made them because the fire alarm definitely went off. There was smoke all over my kitchen. It was, I mean, they were still tasty, but it was just not, not the best experience cooking it. So that's wonderful. And, you know, like you said, it doesn't take very long, right? It's what would you say, like from start to finish? You know, excluding uh, soaking your potatoes, that's probably going to take you 30 minutes to soak the potatoes. To grate them, soak them, that's maybe 45 minutes. Um, but to actually make the batter, cook them and have the whole batch cooked, it really depends on the size of your pan. But if you're using just like a regular size skillet, I think that you could probably get through a batch in 30 to 45 minutes. And a batch is going to make like three dozen latkes. Oh, wow. My mouth is watering already. Thank you so much for sharing the recipe and the tips and tricks. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. And happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate.